Okay, well, good morning. This morning for our Sunday school hour, we will be talking about Martin Luther, the German Protestant reformer. Um, before we get started, though, let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your church. We thank you for the history of your church, for the remnant that you have preserved, for the doctrines that have been handed down to us, for your scriptures that have preserved, been preserved through all this time. We thank you for believers that have come before who have been faithful through trials, through persecution, and that you have used mightily so that your church would continue to stand on this earth and to prevail. Lord, help us to this morning be connected to our, our forefathers in the church to understand that their trials, their challenges, and the truths that they lived by, that we have a great deal in common with them. Lord, please bless our time together this morning. In your Son's name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Luther. Maybe before we get started... Since Martin Luther is such a larger-than-life character uh, in history, uh, it might help me to just know, what do you know about Luther? What comes to mind when, when you see that picture, when you think about Martin Luther? What are some key, uh, key things in his life or that he did or uh, things like that? He was German. He was a Saxon. So he was a... You know, we're talking about medieval Europe under the Holy Roman Empire. He was part of electoral Saxony. So Germany as we know it right now was not a thing. Um, but yes, he was German and spoke the German language. He was born in Eisleben and moved all around uh, different places from Erfurt to Wittenberg. Um, lived in a castle for a little while. <laughs> uh, so he, he, he got around but mostly stayed in one region of Germany. Yes? He was the father of the German Bible. Father of the German Bible, yes. So um, I'll get to this probably next week, Lord willing. Uh, but Luther produced a lot of material for the church. Um, catechism, a German translation of the Bible. We talked at uh, Reformation Day about um, Wycliffe. Um, we also have Tyndale in English, right? Um, well, the German version of Wycliffe Tyndale is Luther. He produced the German Bible and ultimately had a similar effect on the German language as those men did in terms of creating, to a certain extent, the modern uh, idioms and usage of the language itself in German. Yes? Mm-hmm.
Right, so he was a teacher. Uh, he worked, he began in, in the church as a monk in a monastery. Um, and ultimately, as the Reformation proceeded, he continued in a role that was not altogether different in terms of being uh, around other preachers, had a huge influence on, on many reformers beyond his, his immediate country. But even within, um, yeah, he spent a lot of time in the lives of other men. Um, people like Melanchthon come to mind, um, had a huge influence on them. Um, Karlstadt is another one. And for that matter, had many of these men in his home regularly over the dinner table just talking and talking. This is where we get table talk from. Is all, and this was all recorded. They were just furiously taking notes. And so there's just this massive amount of material about what did they talk about and what did he say. Yeah, Daniel. Yes, yes. We're going to talk about that this morning. So Luther was, um, and I was saying this uh, in, in the hallway before, we know a lot more about the inner life of Luther than I think we do of most people from this time, right? So we have Calvin and we have Owen and we have all, we have all these wonderful theologians who bring an, a, a, a treasure to us. Um, but Luther, we know what was going on uh, because he talked about himself a lot, um, we know that, yeah, he struggled mightily with, with despair, with hopelessness, with fear. Um, and that's exactly the, some of the, the sort of background material that I'll get in today in our discussion. Yes? Yes, so we're, we're going to start with that. So his, his sort of story, as it were, um, as we know it, was he, you know, he, was, he was born to a... Um, in, to a, uh, his dad was a miner, coal miner, uh, I believe, and um, he was actually kind of a promising child for his for his dad. Of like, okay, he's going to go to he's going to go to college. You know, he's going to go become a lawyer. And so he was uh, he was actually traveling uh, back and forth between uh, his studies. And one night, uh, lightning I think nearly struck him. I don't know if it actually struck him, but I think nearly struck him, knocked him off his horse. Um, and that sort of gets the whole drama narrative of Luther's life really going. That's kind of where the stories usually start, because at that point he makes a vow to become a monk, and that's really where all of that begins. Of course, his father wasn't too happy about any of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Posted the 95 theses. So the 95 theses, uh, that's why we have Reformation Day on October 31st, right? So... Um, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posts 95 theses or statements to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, that was not altogether unusual as a thing to do. Um, that was kind of like he was, a, he was a theologian, he was a monk. One of the things that they would do is engage in debates on various topics. And so he was basically posting some debate topics to the bulletin board, right? Um, and saying he wanted to engage on, on these ideas. Um, this was all posted in Latin. It was not intended to be broadly distributed, by, like, but some of his students translated into German. Then there was the printing press that was available at the time. 
copies went all over the place within weeks. And before you knew it, uh, what he had intended to be a sort of scholarly debate became a sort of national uprising. So yeah, he uh, sort of, it's funny, this is maybe a bad analogy, but you know the movie Forrest Gump? You know how they make this character where he just kind of bumps into uh, all these major events of history? You know, like all of a sudden he meets the president, he goes to Vietnam, he plays ping pong with the Chinese. He's, he's you know, he's all over the place. Um, he's on the mall in Washington when all these like protests are taking place. Um, I feel like Luther's like the most real life version of this to where all these events in history were all coming together right as he came into being. And then he just did what he naturally would do and had this profound impact on the world. Um, and it really shows the providence of God and the sovereignty of God over history, right? That he was able to just be this German monk, son of a miner, and say, hey, I think that maybe some of the stuff that we're doing in the church is a bad idea. I'm going to post about it in Latin on, on my church door. And the next thing you know, this connects up to the rise of the printing press, the beginning of the Renaissance, the rise of nationalism, you know, um, the the decadence of the, of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, and it just explodes into the Protestant Reformation. So when we talk about the morning star of the Reformation, it was like the, the events of history had not quite gotten to the point at that time for such an explosion of change to take place. But Martin Luther was just perfectly timed for, uh, for, this, for, for what he was saying and what he was bringing, which was the same stuff as Jan Hus a hundred years prior. It was you know very similar to... Wycliffe, um, but now it had uh, a lot more opportunity to spread. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, so Luther is known for his personality. Um, there is online, I think somebody mentioned the, uh, there's a, you can go online and find the Luther insult generator. Um, so, because he had a, he had a way with words of sort of humiliating people who disagreed with him. Um, you know, I, I think I've heard uh, historian Carl Truman say, you know, it's very often the fact that uh, someone's greatest strength is also, in a way, their greatest weakness. His boldness um, and his sort of confidence was uh, a major factor in him being able to stand, literally, here I stand, was part of his speech, stand before the emperor um, and say, I do not recant, you know, I, this is what I believe. Um, but that same boldness and confidence also led him to be uh, pretty, caustic's a good word for it, um, pretty rough on his opponents. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not as if the man was, uh, was blameless or faultless. Um, definitely some things in his life that I wish he could have taken back. <laughs> um, but, uh, but the but he, he, he was a profoundly impactful in, in many positive ways for the church. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. His, his temperament is encouraging. It's, it's kind of like reading about Peter. You're like, okay. <laughs> uh, like, there's, there's somebody in there that doesn't seem uh, quite so, uh, you know, he, he, he had the ability to respond in anger. I mean, to that point, the 95 Theses were, I believe, in part, posted because he was, he was mad. Um, yeah, he was, yeah, this wasn't, wasn't a dispassionate uh, set of theological treatises, right? This was a 
something that really made him frustrated. Yes, ma'am. Right. And, and, or child, right. So we'll talk about indulgences, uh, Lord willing, a little bit more next week. Um, so basic idea of indulgences was um, if you if you died under the Roman Catholic system, it, it's the the expectation is that you would then go to purgatory, where uh, your sins that were not yet cleansed would be through the fires of purgatory. And you'd spend a certain amount of time there, and then ultimately you would get to heaven after some unknown amount of time. Indulgences were a way to say you could sort of buy your way out of that time in purgatory, or for that matter, buy your dead relative's time out of it. Um, And so this really frustrated Luther and led him to post those theses. One thing I would want to make a point of on this, and then I'll get to later, uh, Lord willing, next week, is Luther loved the church. And so the fact that people were being exploited in the church and that this was affecting their uh, understanding of their own sin um, concerned him greatly for the welfare of the members of the church. Yes? Would you call the Roman Catholic Church uh, pharisaical? At this time, I don't know that that would be the way I would characterize it. I would characterize the Roman Catholic Church in medieval times, at least at this time, as more of worldly. Um, uh, well, not religious and distinctive and, and, and law-keeping and all of that. So Luther goes to Rome before, before he posts the theses, and he sees, uh, he sees priests uh, visiting with prostitutes. Um, the... The just decadence, uh, I mean, overall, the, the, the leadership, including the Pope, had become, it was more of a political uh, setup, and the intelligentsia, if you will, of the time, the elites uh, of the time that were not part of the church, they were completely on board with the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. There was no conflict between the culture and the church at that time, in terms of morality or, or anything else like that, so... Yeah. 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 There was sort of a cover for being able to ex- uh, exploit their position uh, or ignore ignore their their duty to God's people. Yes. Right, 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 yeah, yeah, so, and I should make a distinction at this point between the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church and maybe like a peasant member, because a peasant member is perhaps extremely devout and is buying these indulgences because they believe they need to and is living a fairly um, impoverished life. Um, but when you talk about Rome and the Curia, the Pope, and all of that, um, you get a, a lot more of this uh, just worldliness, frankly. Yeah. 
yeah. So every, yeah, the Medici's, the Borgias, yeah, every, every, everything's sort of interconnected here, yeah. And Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, and the Pope at this time, Pope Leo X, I think he rode around Rome in, like, a suit of armor on a horse. It's just, you know, it's pretty different than it is now, so, yeah. The Pope married? Oh, Martin Luther, yes, yes, so thank you for bringing that up. Martin Luther got married to a former nun, so a former monk got married to a former nun, uh, Katarina von Boren, I believe, yeah. Um, hopefully we'll get to, to talk about that a little bit, but yeah, that was, that was one of the things he did that was uh, a, uh, also good for the church, I believe, because up to that time, marriage was almost like a second-class Christian sort of thing to do, right? Monks and you know, people that, were, that had not married uh, didn't do that. Is that, is that coming from the projector? You can turn it off. I don't need it. Um, yeah. Yeah, so he wrote a tract against the Jews, um, I, and it, is, it was used by the Nazis as a sort of, they sort of took his words and used that to justify some of the uh, terrible things they did to Jews in the Holocaust. Um, and he does get the charge of anti-Semitism. Frankly, I haven't read the tract on that, uh, but I have heard historians talk about it, that, yeah, he, again, used caustic language. Um, I think it's possibly true, although don't, don't quote me on this, that his, his, um, his words may have been more against uh, the Jewish religion than, than specifically trying to target uh, the Jewish people, but um, as you might imagine, distinctions like that can get lost pretty easily. Um, and yeah, the anti-Semitism actually was kind of a feature of the time. So that's another thing to keep in mind is uh, it would have been strange if he wasn't anti-Semitic based on the culture he, he was surrounded by, um, which is just, it's good for us to always view historical characters in that light. Uh, what was the cultural norm of the day and where did they actually depart from it is probably the more interesting thing to, to think about, which is what we'll talk about this morning. Yes. On that note, earlier he, he actually encouraged Christians to try to mingle with the Jews. Right. So you know, maybe he warned to the Baptists. Mm-hmm. But it was later in his life, and his, you know, my understanding is his speech is more related to theology. Yes. Than it is than their teaching. Right. So it wasn't racial motivation at the time. Right. Right. I think that's probably true. Yeah, so, yeah, and, and there were other things uh, that were interesting in his life along those lines where you're like, why did you do that? Um, so, uh, but let's, let's, let's jump into it. Um, so I'm going to start with a quote from this book here on the, oh, oh, it's not here. So there's a book in the, um, in the library called Here I Stand by Roland Bainton. It is kind of the standard biography of Luther. It is excellent. I mean, it reads like a novel, Okay. Um, cause his life was like a novel. It's, it's unbelievable what, 
all the things that he uh, experienced and went through. Um, so I'm going to read the opening two paragraphs of Here I Stand. Maybe this will make you want to read it, but I think it's a good introduction to his life. It starts with the vow that we talked about earlier. On a sultry day in July of the year 1505, a lonely traveler was trudging over a parched road on the outskirts of the Saxon village of Stoddernheim. He was a young man, short but sturdy, and wore the dress of a university student. As he approached the village, the sky became overcast. Suddenly there was a shower, then a crashing storm. A bolt of lightning revived the gloom and knocked the man to the ground. Struggling to rise, he cried in terror, St. Anne, help me! I will become a monk. The man who thus called upon a saint was later to repudiate the cult of the saints. He who vowed to become a monk was later to renounce monasticism. A loyal son of the Catholic Church, he was later to shatter the structure of medieval Catholicism. A devoted servant of the Pope, he was later to identify the popes with Antichrist. For this young man was Martin Luther. So when I was asked to teach for a few weeks, I suggested maybe we talk about Martin Luther, um, the 16th century German reformer. He came into mind in part because October 31st is Reformation Day, commemorating that day in 1517 when he nailed those 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. He was protesting errors he saw in the medieval church. Um, but I will say, this is not a history lesson today. We went over some of the facts and figures of Luther's life because I'm largely not going to be doing that in the lesson. I'm not going to focus on dates or events or the political intrigue of the day. It's all very fascinating. Um, but instead, we're going to trace some key themes in Martin Luther's life and in his work. And the first theme we're going to explore is justification. How do I find a gracious God? For Luther, the answer to this question was not just a theological curiosity. This was a terrifyingly personal question. This is what motivated the vow when he feared for his life, almost struck by lightning. How do I get grace? One of the things that makes it challenging to understand a character like Luther is the context in which he lived is so different from our own. They say the past is a foreign country. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. That when you think about the past, you really, even if it's your own country, you should think of it as like a foreign country where things are just different there, right? People thought and lived very differently than we do today. They didn't have iPhones. There was no Wi-Fi. And this is Germany, sort of, electoral Saxony, under the Holy Roman Empire, which was a bit of a mess. So if the past is another country, and this actually is another country, then this is another country twice over. So, for instance, if one of us almost got struck by lightning, how would we react? We probably wouldn't appeal to a saint for help. We certainly wouldn't make a vow to become a monk or a nun. I'm not sure how many would. I'm not even sure how many Catholics would do that today, right? So why is that how Luther reacted? That was a completely sort of 
sensible thing in a way for him to have done. Why did he react that way? So for one, medieval people did not see the world the same as we do today. There was a lot of superstition, if you will, interwoven into medieval culture, including among Christians. So there was a Reformation theologian named Heiko Obermann, and he commented that unless one knew what it was like to walk through the woods at night and be worried that one might be kidnapped by goblins, one did not live in Luther's world. Luther's world was pervaded by the supernatural. It was the battleground for an elemental struggle between God and Satan. Luther feared the physical attacks of the devil. He saw a bolt of lightning as a direct act of God's judgment. We like to think we're so enlightened now, right? That we, we know, oh, well, lightning is just this, and, and that sound in the woods is just that. And medieval man did not think that way. They were interpreting all these things as, as signs or as, uh, as, as of evil beings in the trees, in the woods. Uh, and it created a fear in them. And what could you do if you feared God's judgment? What, what was the recourse? Let's look at what medieval Roman Catholics were taught. And this is again from the book, Here I Stand. The explanation lies rather in the tensions which medieval religion deliberately induced. So in the mind of the medieval Christian, the church tried to create a tension in your mind, in your soul, playing alternately upon fear and hope. Hell was stoked, not because men lived in perpetual dread, but precisely because they did not. And in order to instill enough fear to drive them to the sacraments of the church, if they were petrified with terror, purgatory was introduced by a way of mitigation as an intermediate place where those not bad enough for hell nor good enough for heaven might make further expiation. If this alleviation inspired complacency, the temperature was advanced on purgatory. Literally, they would make it sound harsher or longer. And then the pressure was again relaxed through indulgences. Again, we'll talk about indulgences a little more next week. Basically, they were a way to literally buy merit that would reduce time in purgatory. Even more disconcerting than the fluctuation of the temperature of the afterlife was the oscillation between wrath and mercy on the part of the members of the divine hierarchy. God was portrayed now as the father, now as the wielder of the thunder. He might be softened by the intercession of his kindlier son, who was again delineated as an implacable judge unless mollified by his mother, who, being a woman, was not above cheating alike God and the devil on behalf of her suppliants. And if she were remote, one could enlist her mother, St. Anne. So you see, Luther in this moment was trying to get out of judgment. So he called out to St. Anne for mercy as his advocate before God. And there was this, the question was asked earlier, what about, you know, what was the church like at the time, right? And I was talking about the decadence and the worldliness. But for the, 
the person in the pew, as it were, this is what their experience was. It was, are, are you sorrowful enough? Are you scared enough? No? Okay, we will make the fires of hell hotter to scare you into doing the things that we want you to do. Are you too scared to where you're, you, you're unable to function like properly and to, to operate in the church? We'll reduce it with indulgences and with confession and absolution. There was this sort of constant sort of using sort of the church's abilities as sort of a thermostat, uh, holding the sacraments of the church hostage and using them against the people to get the people to do what they wanted. So I want you to just keep in mind that people who were under this, many of them truly believed what they were being taught and were put in horrible angst and fear over it. And so it's, it's easy to look at this from afar and scoff at how the church abused its authority to, a, to achieve some sort of social control and extortion. But let's leave that to the side for now. I don't want to have a long conversation about the, the abuses of the church. I want to talk about justification. Consider the fact that people believed this. It kept them up nights. It made them fearful as they walked alone during a storm. People were not hearing about the finished work of Christ and the once-for-all forgiveness of their sins. They were hearing about the fires of purgatory. Under this teaching, Luther greatly feared God's judgment and was desperate to escape it. So Luther did the most extreme thing you could do. Become a monk. Now, why did he want to become a monk? Now, at the time, becoming a monk was understood to confer some extraordinary protection as a sort of a second regeneration that removed the stain of original sin. So I, I found this in Philip Schaff's History of the Christian Church talking about this time. There prevailed among the monks of the 15th century a most exaggerated notion of the sanctifying influence of the monastic vow. According to Luther, the monks of his day recognized two grades of Christians, the perfect and the imperfect. To the former, the monastics belonged. Their vow was regarded as a second baptism which cleared those who received it from all stain, restored them to the divine image, and put them in a class with the angels. Luther was encouraged by his superiors to feel after he had taken the vow that he was as pure as a child. This second regeneration had been taught by St. Bernard and by Thomas Aquinas. So again, we know why he called to St. Anne. We know how, why he became a monk. He feared judgment. He wanted to be safe. He wanted a gracious God. Yes, sir. Right. 
-hmm. Right, right. Everyone had maybe their, their saint, right? If you were a minor, it was Saint Anne. And so since his father was a minor, that was their, their saint. In other words, the one who was going to be most sympathetic to their plea, right? Because they had some connection there. So yeah, and so if, if they'd been, I don't know, a woodsman or something like that, probably they would have had a different, different saint. But that was the idea, is trying to make a connection with someone who could influence God on my behalf uh, to rescue me from judgment, right? So for Luther, becoming a monk was a way to turn down the temperature, right? To put more distance between him and punishment. So Luther joined the Augustinian monks, which was a very austere bunch. They would wake at all hours of the night to pray. Luther deprived himself significantly at this time, especially of food. He would fast for days at a time. And he cited this later as having ill effects on his, on his health later in life. He talked a lot about his ill health <laughs> uh, later in life. He almost froze to death from refusing the normal amount of blankets. He said, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. Who does that sound like? Paul. Philippians 3, verse 4. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What did Paul say about all of that righteousness? Filthy rags. Counted as loss. And Luther knew in his heart what Paul knew which is that his supposed righteousness should be counted as loss. Being a monk bought Luther a few months of peace of mind. Just a few months. And then his fears returned. Here's another quote from Luther. If I could believe that God was not angry at me, I would stand on my head for joy. My conscience would not give me certainty, but I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession." The more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more daily I found it more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. And you just feel the anxiety that he just lived with daily. He would go to confession every day, sometimes for as long as six hours at a time. After confession, he sometimes later remembered a sin that he had forgot to confess. And then he would feel guilty on top of that for taking his sin so lightly as to forget about it. His confessor, meaning the person he would confess his sins to, uh, Staupitz is his name, he eventually got fed up. Staupitz said, look here, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive. Parricide, meaning like killing your father blasphemy, adultery, instead of all these peccadilloes. Man, God is not angry with you. You are angry with God. Luther knew the truth, though, that even though he might not appear to be sinful in this monastery, I mean, how much trouble can you get into in a monastery? But before a perfect, holy, blameless God, 
He knew his sins deserved eternal punishment. Luther says this in his commentary on Romans. But God judges according to what is at the bottom of the heart. And for this reason, his law makes its demands on the inmost heart and cannot be satisfied with works, but rather punishes works that are done otherwise than from the bottom of the heart as hypocrisy and lies. Luther believed in the perfect holiness of God and it terrified him. He knew his best works were insufficient to merit anything and he would never remember to confess all his sins. This is mirrored in our confession, if you remember, in the chapter on good works, paragraph 5. We cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and are unprofitable servants. And because they, as they are good, they proceed from His Spirit. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's punishment. Imagine believing all of that and yet not having the good news of the Gospel. That Christ's good works can be imputed to us upon receiving the free gift of faith. This made Luther mad at God. He remarked, love God, sometimes I hate Him. That at least gave him something to go to confession about. Some, he said, sometimes Christ seems to me nothing more than an angry judge who comes to me with a sword in his hand. Luther was regularly afflicted by his conscience. There's even a German word for it. Unfektugen. That's the word Luther used to describe his times of overwhelming spiritual trial, terror, despair, and religious crisis that he experienced throughout his life. He was regularly afflicted by this deep concern, this worry and insecurity. He would experience a loss of faith that God is good and that he's good to me. Here's what he's had to say about one of these bouts of, of Anfektugen. For more than a week, I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy of God. So, historians love to sort of psychoanalyze Luther based on these kind of statements. as having some sort of mental condition, undiagnosed. Like, maybe he was just depressed, right? I'm not going to try to say one way or the other. I don't think... I think it's a little bit too far in, in, back in history for me to uh, definitively answer that. But I will offer a few thoughts. One, Luther was incredibly productive as a monk, as a preacher, even later in life when he struggled with similar anxieties. He was in, prolific in producing the Bible, catechisms, books, sitting with his students, um, he did not retreat into himself and become passive in these moments. Also, frankly, his behavior, to my taking, was consistent with that of a true believer in what he was being taught. 
Maybe the problem is more with us that our consciences can be so easily set aside when we sin. His would not leave him alone. He had every reason to despair at his sinfulness and to fear judgment, as we do. The only thing Luther seemed to lack was the ability to ignore his conscience. He had a terrifying feeling that God was going to judge and condemn him at any moment. He was a sinner in the hands of an angry God. As a monk, depending on his works, he experienced this Anfektugen with no relief from his distress. But then, in 1519, two years after he posted the theses on the castle church door, he was in a tower at the monastery in, in Wittenberg, and he was studying Romans. This changed his perspective and eventually changed the world. This extended quote from Luther on his experience as he studied Romans. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. This is Romans 1.17 he's talking about. Because I took it to mean, justice of God, that that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that Although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul, and I had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and that statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith that you should look upon His fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see Him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across His face. Luther had discovered justification by faith alone. Let's briefly review this and then we'll close. It's summarized well in our catechism the Baptist Catechism number 37. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone.
So I'll talk briefly about three elements of justification. One is Christ's perfect obedience. Christ's perfect life. But then we have another problem. How do we get it? (laughs) It's one thing for Him to have this perfect obedience, for Him to be perfect, but how does it make its way to me? It is imputed to us. Christ as our substitute, this alien righteousness. Okay, that's, that's what happens, but how? How does it get to me? Do I have to do something for it? Well, if I do something for it, then I'm trusting in part for what I did. So no, this is a gift, a free gift of faith that we receive when we trust in Christ and not anything in ourselves. So that's the means. And lastly, there's the verdict. We are declared righteous. We are accepted as righteous. That's justification by faith. So hopefully today, this conversation, you see the tremendous tension of Luther's life in coming to the doctrine of justification by faith. That he wanted grace so badly, and he found it in Christ. Let's close. Father God, we thank you for men who have come before, like Martin Luther. We thank you that their stories do comfort us as fellow sinners saved by your grace. That when we experience moments of anxiety and terror at the holiness of you, we can also remember that you love us and that you are gracious and not for anything that we do, but for your Son alone. Thank you for your church. Thank you that you are continuing to build your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.